would be seen in the land. The smoke of burning villages would darken the skies. The cries of dying would echo in distant valleys. But there's one thing I cannot know. Whether the prophecy be true. Whether Mark Silverman will join me in this podcast and together we will discuss Kroll. It will be a great conversation. And the podcast shall rule the galaxy. Mark, welcome to Cinema Union. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, mate. I just thought I'd uh, I'd kick off, you know, with the theme. Some uh, some uh, some words that have pretty much been seared into my memory. I've seen this movie more times than some people have had hot dinners on <laughs> report. How are you doing, mate? How's everything? I'm over? all right. I'm all right. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's 40 years ago that movie came out. Um, you know, my dad's still alive. Did you know that? I know. I spoke. That's actually the special edition installment for people uh, on the on the other side of our discussion. There'll be a little musical interlude, and I'll actually put on there my interview that uh, I did with your dad. Uh, some, I didn't know you interviewed him. Yeah, some some years back. Um, wow! And as a result of that, uh, someone got in touch with me because they did a uh, a lovely book of James Horner's. Oh yes, yes, yes. And uh, because I was the one who uh, interviewed your dad, they got in contact with me. And oh, was, nice! So I said, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to give out people's private information. So I said, if you you tell me what you want, I'll email it to Ron. If he wants to get in, if he wants to get in contact with you. He will, obviously, and he did. And so, uh, yeah, and, and he ended up, because uh, they wanted your dad to write the uh, the forward for the uh, for the collection. He did. I, I read that, and it was a great forward, and it's a great book. And yeah. that score is just, how James Horner didn't get an Oscar nomination is just I strange. I know, it's crazy stuff. Crazy, crazy stuff. I don't like how... If you don't have a hugely successful movie, sometimes you don't get nominations, and it doesn't really make any sense. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I, uh, but as I mean, as it's been reported since, and as it is being um, uh, widely thought about now, as Kroll was basically caught in an avalanche of um, of sequels to to much more established films at the time so yeah it was easy it was probably easy to see at the time how it got lost um like a lot of films that have become cult films in the last you know, right i mean you had star wars 3 superman 3 jaws 3 psycho 2 and then something called crawl comes yeah that was that was a weird summer i know i know and it's and it, it was kind of 
you can sort of see how studios have, have tried to become risk averse in that sense and keeping with remakes of properties that are established. Yeah. Speaking of, of remakes, though, how did you feel about the uh, the recent news that J.J. Abrams is supposedly interested in uh, well, rebooting? Of course, I, I, it's hard to know how legit that is because there was already, there's been a few rumors. Hmm. Um, so it would be kind of interesting it would be great to see what they would come up with you know yeah i mean but who there, there was only that one article i i keep looking to see if anything else comes up yeah it's it it it, it never really bothers me if it comes from a place of affection like someone who really really loved it and go well you know i wouldn't mind having a stab um it it doesn't bother me in that sense, but if it was just purely like, well, here's a movie that didn't do so well back in the day, maybe we can dress it up with some modern special effects and, and 3D photography and, and and repackage it and sell it to a whole bunch of kids on a different plastic lunchbox. Um, those kind of remakes really annoy me. I mean, um, you know, it was the same with when they proposed Big Trouble in Little China. I think The Rock was... Uh, was going oh. to do big trouble in Little China, and I thought, you know, that's that's like lightning in a bottle. It only you only really get to catch right. it, you know. Yes. And going back, I mean, look, it, right away, if it didn't have James Horner's score in it, it would feel weird. You know, it would feel very weird. You know, it'd be something like, well, you're gonna have to gonna use the score. It was like. Um, how I always felt about when they made Superman, the newer Superman movies, and John Williams' score was such an iconic part of Superman, and probably the best I felt um, was, and I actually interviewed John Ottman about this, who worked on that Superman Returns, and I said he did the best job of interweaving John Williams' original music with new music uh, that he had composed for the score, so it was enough, sounded enough like a Superman movie, but it also had that little bit of difference. Whereas going away, I mean, I've got nothing against Hans Zimmer personally, but, you know, I mean, he, he doesn't have that. Uh, there's a certain lyricism with, uh, with. I mean, his, his stuff is very industrial to me. I know he's done um, some some sweeping scores, but there's a very industrial quality. But like James, James Horner's, uh, James Horner, sorry, uh, score for Kroll. There was a great, uh, you know, like I was watching it again last night and they were talking about how um, Peter Yates's ultimate goal was to out-swashbuckle the old swashbucklers, you know. And uh, there's a romance to that and the score feeds into the romantic quality of what is what they're shooting for on the screen because... Um, in a lot of ways, it is like a fairy tale, you know, an old school fairy tale. You know, the prince has to save the princess from the evil. You know, it's a very timeless. <clears throat> as, as much as it is, 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 as much as it is, a world light years beyond our imagination. It's a very timeless. Of course, yes, all that's yeah, all that's true. I, I you know, Superman, by the way. I was about uh, 14 when that came out. Mm. And I'll tell you, at that time, to see a poster for a multi-million dollar superhero movie was really something special. 
because there wasn't anything like that in the theater. It's not like today where every week there's another superhero movie. Back then in 1978, to see a Superman poster with that tagline, you will believe a man can fly. It, it was impossible not to be captivated by that. Hmm. So we all went opening night to the Chinese theater and it was really, you felt like you were really seeing something. Hmm. There's a superhero movie out every week now for like the last 15 years or more. Hmm. So it's too much, but things are special when they're not just over saturating the market, you know? Hmm. And yes, that score was incredible. Yes. Hmm. But uh, getting back to uh, Kroll, you you actually gave away a, a, a tidbit to me, which is something I did not know. And that was about, uh, you were saying something in, in a, a conversation we had on a message once that there was a scene that was, the end is not how it was supposed to end. The clave was meant to come back to, to Colwyn's hand or something to that effect. Right. I saw Kroll three times before, um, before some changes were made right. and before it was released. Hmm. And I probably remember more than anybody these the way it looked back then, the movie. Yeah. And the, th the three biggest changes were, well, the two biggest changes were the fire mare scene and the glaive at the end. Hmm. And I'll tell you about the glaive scene at the end. Hmm. The way the movie is now, they all watch the fortress uh, explode up to the sky and then they have that bit about uh, only the king and the Lord Marshal carries this key. You're right. And they all laugh and walk on. But if you watch it, it's there's something awkward about that scene is hmm. that this beautiful uh, James Horner music is through the whole movie. And then that moment that should be kind of moving. It's completely silent. Yes. Hmm. And I saw it three times where there was music in that scene. Hmm. And what happened was they had a few effects problem with the fortress blowing up because you could see like little dowels like pushing up some of the because it was really hanging upside down. And right. they wanted to get the thing to fall down, you know, right. and some of the things were stuck. And I don't know if, if you already know, but I think there's one shot where you can see one of the little sticks pushing up. Right one of the fortress pieces. Yeah. So they had to edit that ending a lot. So after the fortress exploded up to the sky, I remember this like it was yesterday. Lissa and Colwyn are standing there and they look to the sky and the glaive is coming back. And Colwyn catches it. He looks at Lissa, they hug, and then they move on. And this was... um. I think this was after the Lord Marshall dialogue. I so they, he catches it, they hug, and then a girl of ancient name, and it goes to the credits. Right, now, yeah. the problem with when he caught the glaive was, for reasons I still can't figure out, they didn't shoot that shot on the location. So all of a sudden you're watching this beautiful location work and all of a sudden, boom, they're in front of a blue screen. And it was so obviously different that, and there were like matte lines bouncing off Lizette Anthony's hair, you know, it just didn't look good. Mm -hmm. And they, so that was taken out. Mm 
So when people watch the movie now, and, and because now the music was too long and they didn't have enough time to edit the music, they just took that music out of that scene. Yes. But yes. I but I always tell people, if you have your crawl soundtrack, hmm. you and you get to that last cut, yes, the ending credits. Before the ending credit music, there's this little piece that's about a minute. And if you start that music exactly when Ergo comes to Ergo, Ergo, you are his queen, all that. If you start that cut on the, the last cut of the Crawl album, right at that point, you can match it up and hear the way that scene was supposed to be with that music. Yeah. And it's so much better. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, it always it always seemed uh, it always seemed like there was you know something yeah something missing there at the at the, at the end. There. Well, especially because James Horner's music is practically through the whole movie, yeah. and then when it comes to the end, you think, why wouldn't there be music? Like you don't think about it, maybe that it's not music, but while you're watching it, something seems off. Yeah, yeah. I yeah I always felt I always felt like that because of the way that the music cut out and then it like Freddie Jones's uh, you did it better than I did um, uh, his his uh, monologue from the start comes back and then the score comes back in and then the credits come up the screen so right. you know. I actually became a voice actor and. I play a lot of voices of old English kings. Well, my friend, yes. And I think what happened was, because I lived in London for like the pre-production and all these, these different um, English voices, I found so interesting and appealing. Yeah. And of course, Freddie Jones, you will need more than men and swords. You will need the power of the glaive. And um, the Emerald Seer, the temple is at the center of the swamp where three trees grow as one. Yeah. I really took that in, you know. So there's a few Miyazaki movies where Disney did the dubs of Howl's Moving Castle and Nausicaa. And right. I got cast as the old king father. And it was all because of my experiences in London. Definitely. So yeah. I, you know, I take the, I, I love the Freddie Jones dialogue and all that. Oh, yeah. I, I always find it funny when somebody will try to give a bad review to Crawl and they'll go, oh, the acting is terrible. And you go, are you just stupid or something? Freddie Jones, Liam Neeson, Francesca Annis, Alan Armstrong. Where are you going to say this acting's terrible in a movie with those cast members? I mean, so many of them are from the Royal Shakespeare. I know. Company. I know. It's, it's, it's staggering. And Freddie Jones is acting his heart out in that movie. He's, he's I, I, yeah. I remember going to Pinewood with my father yeah. and we watched a screening of the elephant man. Right. Freddie Jones had already been cast, but my dad was looking for a little boy for the movie. And right. there's a kid in the elephant man, but right. they didn't end up using him. Right. But the real, the real titch kid was fantastic. Hmm. Did you interview him? No, no, no. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'd love to though. It'd be fantastic. To I talked to him on uh, Facebook or Twitter, one of those things. Sure, sure. Yeah. No, I'd love I'd love I'd love to talk to him. Hey, speaking of voices, can you do Liam Neeson? Um <laughs> I could do that scene in Crow um in the giant tree set. All right. Uh, yeah. Hey Kagan, hello. 
Does one of your wives live in a village near here? Lona. Rabshima down to the river. How many wives does he have? Well, about seven or eight at the last count. Well, he's a traveling man, you see. He covers a lot of ground. Merith. Yes, she lives in a village at the edge of the giant trees. Can she cook? It's not her strongest point, but I'll tell you. Kagan, just have her bring provisions. Huh? Magnificence of the rain he can cook. We'll soon see. Oh, yeah. I know every word of the movie. That's fantastic. Every every single word to the movie. Yeah. I can because I can the, I can listen to the score and 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 do the dialogue for different scenes. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever blast the score in your car? Oh, every day. Every day. Yeah, it's great. Especially the, but, especially um, the case. I, I I want to tell you about the other changes in the movie. Sure. One of the one of the things that I find funny now during the process of the editing, my dad would always tell me yeah. the mountain climbing scene was too long. Okay. And he, and this is Coleman climbing the mountain. Right. Right. Yeah. So to put it in perspective, it takes, it takes Coleman three minutes to climb the mountain and get to the glade. It took Charlton Heston in the 10 commandments, one minute to get up to God, to see right. how climb the mountain. And yeah. those scenes, I think the Charlton Heston scene in the 10 commandments is the most uh, similar to the crawl scene of any other movie. Cause he's climbing these beautiful mountains with this huge score. And yeah. it looks like that, you know, but it took him one minute and it took Colwyn three minutes. Yeah. And the problem with cutting that scene You've got probably the Dolomite Mountains, probably in the top 20 greatest locations on planet Earth. Sure. You've got Peter Sushitsky fresh off of The Empire Strikes Back, filming the scene, all sure. while James Horner's conducting the London Symphony. How could you cut that scene? Like, it's very difficult. But there were two cuts made, and I'm still probably the only person that remembers this. Right. During the climbing scene, there were two shots of Freddie Jones alone, just waiting. Right. Yeah. And each each clip lasted probably seven seconds. Right. So those two clips were taken out, and I can still hear the cut in the music. And I nobody else can, but I know it. It's right. exactly when Colwyn looks up and sees the opening in that cave. It's right about that part. Right. I can hear where they chopped it together. Right. But still, you know, Krull was on television, I remember, like 20 years ago. And right. the way they did that scene, because they always edit for TV, yeah. they had Freddie Jones, uh, Freddie Jones say, if you do not come back with it, you'll not come back at all. Yeah. And the scene dissolved to, to Colwyn already halfway up the mountain. It cut out the whole rock tumbling thing. Right, right, right. And right. as I watch it now, I think that might have been a good way to cut it. But the problem with that is the rock tumbling scene showed that there was some magic involved that Colwyn, you couldn't just walk up there. Like all of a sudden rocks were coming down. So they had to have that scene. But yeah, it's pretty long. But God, when you watch that scene, especially on a big screen, how Peter Sushitsky didn't get an Oscar nomination. I mean, is there one shot in a Star Wars movie on a location that can match that scene? I don't think there is. No, not at all. I think it's no. magical, though, and I'd love to know how many times they took to get it. Uh, when he runs across the ridge to go into the mouth of the cave, Yeah, there's a moment where the sun hits his sword to really show you where he is because he's very hot. Right. Because he's wearing black. Yeah. 
He's in the shadow of the mountain. But as he crosses to obviously leap from into the cave, the sun catches the sword. For like, yes. So you see where he is. And it's like yes. you couldn't have planned that, I don't think. Right. So, I know. And then it makes me wonder, where was Peter Sushitsky standing? I mean, it's, like, it's yeah. an impossible scene to shoot. Exactly. But that, did you, have you seen Crawl on the Big Screen, though? No, never. Oh, God. Well, that's my one that's, scene. That's my one bugaboo. I've never seen it in the theater. How old are you, by the way? I'm 45. Okay. Oh, okay. So you, yeah, you were very young when the movie came out then. Yeah. Yeah, I was a teenager. So, because it only ever came out on video in Australia, it never came to theaters. When you see that scene on a big screen, believe me, it's mesmerizing. Okay, I'll, t- I'll tell you about the other scene that was cut up. The fire mare scene, all those point of view shots of the mountains moving, there's one that lasts about 25 seconds. Mm-hmm. None of those shots were in the movie the first three times I saw it. Right. And you saw uh, there was a lot of shots of the robbers on the horses kind of racing each other and laughing and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was really beautiful, you know. But then at a screening... You know, you get these comment cards and people had a problem with the with the flames and the blue screen work. So they took some of these shots out and they put they had a like a a lot of shots from a low flying helicopter just going through the Italy mountains. Hmm. And they put those scenes back in the movie. And it looks pretty good, I think. But I, I really would love to see the way it looks before. Before those shots were included hmm. and. One of the effects that's really great in that scene is that first shot you see of a one of the hooves and the fire bursting out. You see it right after the shot of Colwyn. And that was actually like a mechanical hoof <laughs> with gasoline in it, I think, or some kind of flamethrower. And oh, they yeah. put that on like a, they about, um, they, it was like on the back of a moving vehicle. And they just filmed it going over and over. That shot of the hoof should have been in that scene at least two more times somewhere in it, I think. That's my opinion of that. But um, the music is so great in that scene. But even when they jumped the canyon, that, that on opening night, that got applause in the theater when the, when the firemen jumped the canyon. And then the whole shot was just on from a distance seeing the flames in the air. And then you would see like one horse after another go to the other end and it was kind of a nice looking scene and then they cut in the Liam Neeson shot of him with Titch on the horse and it was beautiful I liked it better back then but then they added that point of view shot of the mountains moving and that worked too but I'd still if anyone had that at Pinewood I doubt it's anywhere but I'd love to see the way it used to look yeah no, I mean, I was. I, I remember when uh, when DVDs first came in vogue, and I was very surprised uh, that Kroll was on DVD. It was the first DVD I ever bought, um, and I was very shocked because uh, Kroll was not uh, a, a widely released film here, and only ever came out on video in Australia. And I was just enthralled the fact that there was a commentary with Peter Yates on it. Yeah. I like I like Lizette Anthony on that on that commentary. She goes, I hope you enjoyed Crow. I didn't. And she, you know, she took a little poke. And obviously the, her voice being taken out was and it, you know, 
anybody that watches the movie and especially watches the making of featurette and you hear Lizanne Anthony's beautiful voice and you wonder why on earth it really was the dumbest decision anybody made about that movie. And to get a little, uh, a little um, praise of my father, he fought like hell to keep that vo her voice in the movie. I know. Yeah, it just it and makes it, at, at no sense why they would have done that. Yeah, and he and he also fought very hard to have uh, the film's writer Stanford Sherman because at one point they told me uh, they Petty Yates had another writer and he there was <clears throat> several. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, Stanford. that was another issue. And, and you know, uh, till till this day, I am. <laughs> 99.9% .9 positive Robbie Coltrane was not dubbed. Right. Yet every article on Crawl mentions Robbie Coltrane with his dubbed voice. Yeah. And they say Michael Elphick dubbed him. At one time, Michael Elphick, I'm pretty sure, was going to be Torquil. Right. And I, I, there's no, it doesn't look to me like Robbie Coltrane was dubbed. Doesn't sound like it either. You know. Yeah, I, I I think, you know, the Internet's a weird thing. One person says something yes. and then it's on IMDb, then it's on this, then it's on that. And then it becomes like the truth because one person somehow said that. But I don't I he's not dubbed. Yeah, no, it doesn't. He doesn't sound dubbed at all. That sounds like and there's no reason they would have dubbed him. No, no, not at all. I mean, he did at that time. He had a little bit more of an accent. Uh, yes. I know that's weird saying we all have accents, but he had a little bit more of an accent and then he, you know, went into some different characters then. But um, he, uh, no, that's, I mean, that that sounds for all money like Robbie Coltrane. I don't. Uh, yeah. I was wrong. The Johnny was worthwhile. Finish it. You know, there's another edited scene. Yes. And this really is a headache to me. Hmm. it's like me and my father are the only ones that seem to bond about this. Cause this, this is another thing, right? The three times I saw crawl, hmm. one of them was just with my family. And then two was a big, a big screening at uh, Columbia, hmm. Columbia pictures. And right. we, they had Liam Neeson's death scene right. was, was completely edited. Do you know, do you know about that? Yes. Yeah. If I if I could recreate it all with my just my voice, how the scene used to be, hmm. he get he gets killed, and Torquil runs over to him. My traveling days are over, my friend. No, no, we'll get you. No, no. Here's my stay. Tell Lona, I loved her, and she was my favorite. Tell Merith, I loved her, and she was my favorite. I really did love them all, you know. And the audience was laughing with this dialogue because it was funny to see Liam Neeson about to die and then doing this, you know. So right. the, it got a big laugh. And then not only did it get a laugh, it turned into applause. And the whole theater was applauding. Wow. And I'm sitting there going, my God, the, the reaction. This is like one of the best reactions of the entire movie with this audience. Yeah. Until this day, I don't think Peter Yates was at that screening because right. I don't think he would have wanted to cut it if he heard that. Right. And his whole thing was it slows the action down in the fortress. Sure. And it was probably true, mm. but it was already slowed down because he was dying there. 
Why yeah. take out take out a, a a bit where the audience is laughing and applauding? Yeah, sure. To sure. this day, that bothers me. Yeah, I have I have the different versions. I have the version where it's completely uh, cut out. There's another version where it plays the same, but it plays as voiceover. That doesn't make any sense. Have I've seen that. that. Have you and seen the that? Shot, the but shot is on Torquil, and you hear. I, I don't get why they even bothered to do that. Yeah, because that just is weird that they did that. Because you, why because, not see him when he says that? Yeah, because the um, the uh, the the cadence of the scene continues. Liam Neeson drops out of frame, and then they just play it as right. And the humor of the scene was that he said the other wife first and then looked like he was going to die and said, until Merith that I loved her. And that was the whole bit. Yeah. Yeah. That, that bothers me to this day. Yeah. No, it's, um, it was weird because the first time I ever saw it, like I said, it only ever came out here on video in Australia, but it, uh, in that particular video version that I still have, the Columbia release, it, it doesn't have it at all. There's no, you can't hear. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, that came out of nowhere. I, that really surprised me that they even had that line. Yeah. And then when it, uh, when I first saw it on DVD, the line uh, is in there, but it's the, it's just dubbed over. The editing is exactly the same. He he goes out of shot and then you hear it as voiceover while uh, Alan is, is looking over at Ken with a concerned look, you know, well, Let's get on with it. We're dying yeah. one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it didn't make time. sense. But uh, you know, fame is an empty purse. You know, <laughs> that's true. That's a great line, right? Right. It's it's like actually, I think it's a great a great sort of uh, thing. People when people ask me about trying to get into the movie business, so I said, you know, well, fame is an empty purse. You know. Eat it. Count it, go broke. Eat it, go hungry. Seek it and go mad. That's right. That is true. But this fame and this freedom you could leave to your sons. How did you know I had sons? Every word of that movie I know. It's it's weird. I just I saw it it was such a part of of our lives back then. And I just kinda, you know. You you actually have a you actually have a, a, a... A little relic of of that movie, don't you? I I I I used to, but I I I sold it to a man who has a crow museum. Oh, oh, that's great. Oh, well, that's good. That's I, good. I, and I would I would not have sold that to anybody that did not have a crow museum. That's true. Yeah. No. Yeah, that yeah. was important to me. So yeah. it's at a perfect place. That's good. and it's in England somewhere. That's good. Now, well, I'll have to. I'll have to. Check that. I'll have to check that out. A Chrome Museum, eh? Somewhere. I'll have to get up to England and have a look at that for sure. I, yeah, I know. Have you, have you been there? Have you seen it? Or you, you don't? I haven't seen it, but I, he's sent me photos of it. Oh, okay. So, got like he... Col Colwyn's shirt, uh, Liam Neeson's axe, wow, Peter okay. Sushitsky's clackboard. Wow. Yeah, he's got a lot of great stuff. That's fantastic. Well, well done. A Chrome Museum. And I actually heard. Uh, Someone, uh, a friend online, said that uh, Lisset and Ken recently did a show uh, together somewhere. Appeared for yeah. I didn't. I didn't go to it, but they were here. Yes. Yeah. Ken 
I went to see the movie with Ken about eight years ago. It came for the 30, for the 30th anniversary or 35th or whatever. They played it in Hollywood. And Ken, I met, I went with some friends and Ken met us at the theater in Hollywood. And it was a great screening. And he said that was the greatest time he ever enjoyed the movie. Mm. You know, once all the, the nerves go away from the opening to, to just sit there and relax and watch it. 30 years later, he could really enjoy it. And of course, as I said, it looks spectacular on a big screen in a theater. Yes, that's my <clears throat> that's still on my bucket list before I die is to uh, maybe I'll just have to organize one or something. It's got you got to see it. It's got to come out. Yeah. Eventually, it'll come out somewhere. You'll go. Yeah. I mean, eventually, I mean, if they if they do end up uh Probably if they do end up rebooting this, or you know, if if it's true, or right, the the uh, the original will find a whole another life as it uh, as it continues yeah. to do, which is good. I'm glad. Yeah, I'm, I know. It's amazing considering what the reviews were when the movie came out. Mm. To just watch a clip on YouTube and see like 150 comments. This is my favorite movie. I love this since I was a kid. I and you're going, where were these people in the summer of 83? Like, we can't figure it out. Yeah, yeah. No, I wish I wish it had have come. As I say, I wish it had have come to cinemas here. But uh, as often was the case, uh, well, it's still it's still kind of the same case. When, when a movie doesn't perform well in the States, or as it was then, if it didn't perform well in the States, it, it rarely got a theatrical release. It would... Uh, it would right. Bypass the theaters and go straight to video, and uh, that was, um, of course, where I first saw it. But uh, yeah, God, God, and the wind's willing, I will uh, I'll one day get to see that uh, on the big screen because I've got no doubt it looks uh, 10 times, uh, yeah. I, I know, I wonder if they do remake it if Liam Neeson will have a cameo. That would be, that would be it, seems like that would have to happen, yeah. Like all the older cast would play like the, the right. Old, back then and and then you'd have the newer yeah characters that's right god who knows if that'll happen yeah anyway i mean i'm 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 quietly i'm quietly apprehensive uh you know when it's when it's your favorite movie when it's a movie that you can watch like over and over and not get sick of it and then they start to to play this uh reboot remaking game i don't know but uh we'll wait we'll wait with uh anxiousness and anticipation at the same time because if it's done if it's done from a place of people that actually yeah, love this movie then uh, it could be a good thing and of course there's there's already a score written so they'll certainly save money uh in that department if there's i know has a has a sequel has a remake ever used the same score i wonder if that's happened it's interesting to bring that up i wonder if that's ever been done hmm. yeah it seems because it just seems like it would be superfluous to, to to write another score i mean it's it's well yeah it'd be it'd be like a, a remake of rocky and seeing him run up the stairs with a different yeah you couldn't do that you know it was like i was saying earlier about superman there was something about john williams's thing that when you take it out of the superman movies it's almost like take the the musical soul out of superman because that well, thing... did it didn't he even the music even you could it go, bah, bah, bah. it's like Superman. Yeah, like it's perfect. You couldn't right. come up with a better score. 
Absolutely incredible. As it has been incredible uh, this morning and this afternoon, we're here to talk to uh, the mighty Mark Silverman. We've been talking about Kroll. There's going to be a musical interlude coming up. Uh, but, Mark, it's been fantastic talking to you, mate. And uh, Thank you. I gave you Kroll stories you'll ne- you can't get anywhere else. So this was good. This was fantastic. Thank you very much, mate. There'll be a musical interlude coming up, and then we will play my my original interview with Mark's dad, Ron, and he'll tell you some more stories straight from the uh, straight from the horse's mouth, straight from the, the land light years beyond your imagination. Pleasure, Ken. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay, well, we'll jump straight in. Uh, how did you come to uh, the, the, the profession of being a producer? Well, I, I suppose that if there's any phrase that uh, defines what a producer has to do, uh, I thought about that years before I became a producer, and that phrase is plan ahead. Uh, it went the way I had planned, although I couldn't believe, even in retrospect, that it did. But when I was a sophomore in college, always interested in film, uh, I decided to switch schools to one that had a top-rated journalism department, uh, hoping to graduate from that department and go to work on a newspaper, probably in my hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, write for a couple of years there. 
uh, write entertainment uh, articles to the point that I could take those articles to the show business trade paper Variety, which is the biggest trade paper, uh, Hollywood trade paper in the United States, and see if I could get a job there and work there for a couple of years until I could meet some people in the film business and make enough uh, of a relationship that I would be offered a job in production, and that's exactly what happened. Wow. And from there I went on to uh, work not only in film but in television, and then in 1967, uh, after years at uh, 20th Century Fox and uh, Warner Brothers, uh, I went. Uh, I entered into a relationship with a gentleman named Ted Mann, who was a cinema owner who had come to Los Angeles wanting to make films. He had quite a lot of money, so he was able to invest in projects uh, as well. And my producing career started uh, with him in that year. Wow. So the million-dollar question, how did Kroll come across your desk? Well, Kroll didn't come across my desk. Okay. Kroll was created at my desk. Oh, uh, created at your desk. But, okay, there you go. Uh, what happened is that I was producing Brubaker. Right. Uh, that movie uh, for 20th Century Fox uh, that was starring Robert Redford. And uh, I finished that in 1980. And while I was producing that, Ted uh, made a deal with Columbia Pictures to make a number of films. Right. And when I was finished with Brubaker, he and I met with the head of Columbia Pictures, uh, Frank Price. And Frank Price said to us, how would you like to do a movie based on Dungeons and Dragons? Well, he didn't mean Dungeons and Dragons specifically as much as generically. It was the hottest game in the country at that time. Right. And uh, obviously what he was interested in was a fantasy film, right. science fiction fantasy film. So uh, I said to him that I thought that I had the perfect writer for it. And he said, well, go to it. So... The problem was that they didn't know that writer, uh, that writer being Stanford Sherman. Right. Stanford, uh, Stanford had done a number of things, but he was not a well-known writer. But I had done quite a lot of work with him trying to get projects going, and I knew that he had an imagination that went far beyond the imagination of most writers that I had worked with. Right. problem was that... Uh, as a member of the Writers Guild, he was in a position that he couldn't write anything, really. Couldn't start writing anything uh, without being paid, and I couldn't pay him until I could convince Columbia that he was the proper, the right writer for this project. Right. So uh, he and I sat down, and uh, we came up with a basic idea for a fantasy film. And uh, I said, look, even though you can't write, maybe what you could do, and I, I don't think that there would be any problem with a, with a union, is to write down just what we have talked about at this meeting, which was essentially the plot line or the beginning of a plot line. Yeah. And I said, I'll take that to Columbia and talk about you and bring you in in the hopes that they will allow you to come in to write the screenplay. Okay. So he said he would do that, and about a week later, he sent me the, the page, but it wasn't the page, it was pages. Right. He had written 30 pages of screenplay. Right, right. And asked 
to, but that's what he did. I guess what happened is that he started writing and uh, it, he couldn't stop. Right. So I read the 30 pages and they were really wonderful. Right. So uh, Ted and I called a meeting with Frank Price and two other executives at Columbia. They came over to Ted's apartment in West Hollywood and had breakfast. And then after breakfast, I, I again, I think about this, I can't believe that I did it, but uh, I did something that uh, I had never done before and that I don't think too many others had ever done before either. And that was, I asked the three executives after breakfast to please sit down in the living room and read the 30 pages. Right. Normally, I would just give it to them, they would take it back to the studio, and if I was lucky, if we were lucky, they would read the, the uh, 30 pages rather than giving the 30 pages to a reader, and then the reader's opinion would determine whether or not in this case, the writer was the right one to write it. Yeah. But they, for some reason, did not refuse to do it. They showed no reluctance whatsoever. <laughs> the three executives sat down, started to read, and about a half hour later, Frank Price, the head of the studio, was the first one to speak. And my recollection is, uh, he, he only had two words. He said, let's go. Yeah. So uh, well I was thrilled, went back to Stan Sherman. Uh, we finished doing the work that we had to do because they, at the same time that was happening, the studio was negotiating with his agent to uh, bring him on in, a, uh, in an official way. Yeah. And then Stanford wrote the, uh, the screenplay, the first draft of the screenplay. Yeah. The, first, the first draft of the screenplay was excellent and uh, we gave it to the studio, and the studio said, let's move. They decided for whatever reasons were important to them, mostly financial, that the film should be made in, in London. Right. And it was, uh, and we started to plan for that move to London. Right. Stanford uh, Sherman, there's, there's next to nothing about him, but he, I mean, aside from Kroll, like, uh, like you read uh, when I sent you some uh, questions there, he... He also wrote Ice Ice Pirates, but he he didn't seem to do too much, you know, or, or didn't have any more credits too much after that. Um, he, he seems like a very interesting, intriguing fellow, was he? Well, I thought that he was, and you're quite right. I don't think that he stayed in the in the film business very much longer after Crawl and Ice Pirates. Uh, I have tried to find Stanford Sherman over the last 15 years, yeah. and the closest I ever came was, uh, I think on Facebook, I found a, uh, a name of a young woman that turned out to be his niece, Wow! and uh, I contacted her by Facebook and to tell her that I wanted to talk to Stanford, and she said she would get in touch with him, but I never heard from him. Okay. And we had a great relationship, so I, I have no idea what happened to Stan, but I'd love to find... If you ever find out, let me know. Uh, I believe, I sadly believe he passed away. Uh, you think he did? Yeah, well, I, I noticed that... Uh, I, I'm not saying IMDB is the most reliable source, but it did uh, it did mention that he'd passed away. Um, oh, really? The, well, uh, I haven't looked him up on IMBD yeah. for quite some time, so... Yeah. Uh, you must know more than more than I do about yeah, it. But that was um, 
Yeah, because it, it it seems like he he came and and uh, and had these uh, what have become two eventual cult hits, and and then uh, nothing else really. Like he, uh, he well, yeah. he was very talented, and there was no reason for him not to continue. And my yeah. guess is he could have been very successful. Yeah, but I never knew why he decided not to do that. Right. Um, so, so the development period with with the script was really between the you, you the two of you. There wasn't like a long gestation period. Well, there's. I think of all the stories to be told about Krull, probably mm. the script story yeah. is the most uh, intriguing. Yeah. Uh, because the, the step that had to be taken at Columbia, the next step was obviously to find a director. Right. They had a uh, relationship with uh, Peter Yates, and they asked me if I thought Peter Yates was a good idea. At least I think they asked me that, because it was pretty obvious that he was. He had made uh, Breaking Away, the uh, movie about the bicycle riders of the high school kids, and it was a charming, charming movie, and he had recently made Bullet uh, with Steve and it was a very exciting uh, thriller and uh, action movie. And that's what Crow required. The script that Stanford had written was a combination of action uh, and charm. Yeah. So Peter Yates was the perfect, uh, perfect choice. Yeah. They gave the script to him, and he agreed to do the movie. Yeah. Oh, uh, it, it is, as you probably know, it is not unusual when a director comes on to a project that he or she wants to make that project his or her own. And the way they do that is to bring the writer back or put another writer on to uh, do some rewriting that uh, really kind of follows some of the things that ideas that they have beyond the script that they read. Uh, So the first job or the first thing that happened was that we brought Stan back to do a second draft, this time uh, incorporating some of Peter Yates' ideas. Right, right. But Peter, uh, for whatever reason, didn't seem to be satisfied with what uh, Stan was giving him. So uh, he went to the studio executives, again, because he had a very good relationship with them. And uh, asked, not asked, he probably almost demanded, I wasn't part of that meeting, to bring on his own writer. And uh, they allowed him to do it. So a second writer came on to the project. And in the meantime, we were making this move to London to get up to to make this, at the time, very big movie. Yes, yes. the script, the script uh, he, they finished the first draft, they gave it to me, and uh, I don't know how much of my loyalty to Stan Sherman had to do with my reaction to the script, but my reaction, frankly, wasn't very good. Yeah. I think the writing was very good, but I don't know that this writer really uh, was the correct writer, the right writer for this kind of material. Right, right. The yeah. script was, he gave the script to the studio. Uh, again, we were in London. The studio called and said that they didn't like the script. So uh, they asked to meet Peter 
in New York, and uh, I wanted to support Peter, so I sat down and, and wrote, I don't know, eight pages of single-space notes of what I thought could be done with this draft to make it uh, shootable. And I have no idea whether Peter ever even read those notes, but he went to New York and he met with the executives in Columbia, convinced them, I guess convinced them, that this his writer should get a second chance, should get another chance to go to a second draft of his screenplay. Yeah. Uh, I think, I'm not positive of this, but I think he agreed that he, Peter, would would pay for it out of his fee. His fee was fairly large for the for the time, and he I think paid for that draft. Yeah. So uh, we were now in pre production on the film. This the sets were being built. We were at Pinewood Studios at uh, in London, outside of London, and we were essentially taking or using almost every stage they had. I think we used nine or ten stages for all the sets that were being built because the movie the movie did location in Italy for two weeks and we had a couple of local locations exterior but uh, 95% of the movie was shot on the stages at uh, Pinewood Studios yeah. so we had to get going building those sets we also had to get going on the visual effects because this is before computers and were used, and it took a long time to create and to implement a lot of the visual effects. So we were essentially doing it to the first draft of what Peter's writer had, had done. Wow. Now Peter's writer came in to do a second draft. He did the second draft, and uh, they gave it to me, and I was even unhappier than I was before. Mm-hmm. I have no recollection of what I said to Peter about that, but about the same time, we got a call from the studio in Hollywood, and they said, uh, can you come to Los Angeles and see if you can get Stan Sherman to come back on the project and to do a draft that uh, that we can shoot, because they didn't like the Peter's writer's second draft either. Yeah. I flew back to Los Angeles, I met with uh, Stan Sherman, uh, he was upset, obviously, and he said to me, he said, you know, if if the other writer had done one draft, I think we're all accustomed to that. I don't think that would have been a problem. But the fact that they brought him back to do a second draft makes me kind of angry. Yeah. Well, his anger kind of transformed his agent into uh, being very, very tough when it came to negotiating his contract yeah. to do the next draft. And I think we ended up paying him five times to do that draft what we paid him to do the first one. Wow. Wow. But he did it. He did. And uh, he was in London. He worked with Peter. Uh, Peter obviously wasn't too happy with what had happened, but he did work with Stan at that point, as did I. And uh, we used that draft that uh, that Stan had written in London as the one that actually got shot. Okay, right. Yeah, because I was... I was going to say. Long story, Kent, but that's that's what happened with the screenplay. That's great. No, I was I was going to say because <clears throat> when when uh, when you said that they brought another writer on, I was sort of gearing up to to question. Well, how did Stanford Sherman, you know, retain his credit, and why didn't the other guy get credit? But obviously, the the film that was shot was a Stanford Sherman script, and not not this other chapter. That is. 
Yeah, well, PDH had a great uh, supporting uh, crew with him. Stephen Grimes, Derek Meddings, uh, Peter Shasinski, uh Derek Armstrong, you know, all the, all these uh, wonderful people. I, I just wondered, uh, and my question is, is, is centered around the fact that a, a lot of these, uh, these gentlemen, because um, they were part of the sort of the elite of the British production teams at that time, were they picked for that reason or were they... Picked simply because of their their credits prior to Kroll. Well, none of them had been uh, selected, obviously, until we got to London. Right. And uh, you're quite right. Each one of them had uh, major credits. Uh, Stephen Grimes, the production designer, uh, wasn't doing movies in uh, in England. I think the movies that he did. Uh, before he did Crawl, were I think he did on Golden Pond, and he did Three Days in the Condor, and The Way We Were. He did do one movie. Uh, I guess Ryan's daughter probably was made in uh, in England. Uh, Peter Sushinsky had been working in London, and uh, he did The Empire Strikes Back, the Star Wars movie. Oh, yeah, uh, Derek Meddings was working in London, doing all the Superman movies, the James Bond movies. So all of these people were people who had uh, either you know had done very very good work, or in the case of Peter Sushitsky and Derek Meddings, they had both done uh, special effects movies, and uh, they seemed to be the the right people to choose. They, luckily, they were available, and we brought them onto the movie. Right, yeah, because the amazing uh, amazing group, and it really shows on the screen. Um, how how much were you involved in casting, or was that purely sort of Peter's territory? Are you are you involved in casting in your pitches, or? Well, uh, I like to think that uh, I mean there are three areas that a producer or four that are going to be involved in, and uh, one of them is business and the front, finding somebody to finance the movie you want to make, and then production, putting all the elements together. Uh, and then at the end, uh, selling the movie, the commercial end. But uh, I think that producers, good producers, ought to be doing a fourth thing, and that would be described as creative. Right. Uh, I can't say that everybody uh, would agree that every producer is creative, but I sure lo- that was the part that I enjoyed the most. Right. Uh, at the same time, uh, I recognize, I mean, I'll tell you a very fast story. I remember when I was the dean at the American Film Institute, I was hosting uh, seminars, and uh, I was interviewing a a producer uh, for the entire student body, all the fellows, and uh, his description of how that works is that the producer has a gun all during pre-production, and then that the day you start production, or you're close to that, he turns the gun over to the director. Right. And uh, that pretty much explains that a good producer is also there to protect and to provide the director for all the things the director needs. Most directors want to do casting themselves with a casting director. Yes. Uh, sometimes they will involve the producer, sometimes they won't. I was involved to some degree, but I won't take credit or blame uh, for the casting. 
most of the casting outside the two leads yeah. were uh, v rather famous British actors, many of whom had done things at Royal Shakespeare and whatever. Yes. And the casting director and the director, I think, did a really wonderful job with uh, with the cat with that casting, yeah. with the casting of all the parts beyond the two leads. Yeah. The two leads I was brought in on. Yeah. Uh, my recollection is that. Uh, uh, I came. I became very close to uh, both uh, Lizette Anthony and Ken Marshall, uh, I, so I was very happy with uh, with them. Uh, didn't turn out all that well in some cases with Lizette, because uh, you may know, may not know. Yeah, she was that, dubbed. Uh, <laughs> she what? She got dubbed. Yeah, she. Yeah. When the film was finished, yeah. uh, the studio and Peter decided that a picture would do better if the leading actress had an American accent instead of an English accent, and they decided that they would revoice her with a, an American actress. Yeah. And there was a case where uh, Peter's relationship with the studio and the studio itself, uh, they won that argument. I tried very hard to convince them that uh, it was a bad idea, but uh, that wasn't one that I won. Yeah. But uh, and and of course uh, one of the, one of the big stars to come out who wasn't a big star at the time, big star to come out of it was uh, Liam Neeson, the young Liam, Liam Neeson. Yeah. That's right. Well, Liam, uh, I don't know, and there was one other, Robbie Coltrane, yeah, who yeah. Uh, went on to uh, big thing, be yeah. one of the stars of all of the uh, Harry, Harry Potter movies. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Liam was not a star then. I had the uh, good fortune of preparing a film that I did not end up producing that Liam was in later on. Right. Uh, Bill wasn't a major star. It was before Schindler's List. Uh, but he was he was getting there, and he was awfully good in Crow. Uh, and uh, I can't say that we thought uh, that it wasn't going to be too long before he became a major, as big a star as he's become. Mm. But uh, he's very, very deserving. Yeah, certainly. So, uh, so Ron, what were your... Uh if you have any uh, recollections of of the actual production, like from from the shoot, do you have any, uh, I guess, interesting anecdotes from from the actual filming of of the movie? Uh, probably every day. I mean, first of all, <laughs> officing at uh, Pinewood Studios and having twenty to twenty five sets being built on nine or ten stages. Uh, I think that. What happened is that I would walk around that studio from stage to stage, really not believing that I had been part of creating a movie that resulted in all of this money being spent mm. to, to build these sets on which all of our actors would perform. Yes. So it was not only a very satisfying feeling, but it was a little scary, to be honest with you. I mean, we this movie cost then about $26 million. Right. Uh, in dollars, that would be like uh, $75 million. That's still not what uh, a lot of big major special effect movies are costing today. Yeah. $75 million today is still a big budget. I mean, my, yeah. you know, I'm spending $26 million. The, it, had had, it wasn't that long after the first movie that I made in and that movie cost three hundred and fifty thousand. Right. So uh, oh, wow. <laughs> I really there was a major responsibility here with uh, 
with all of this. As far as anecdotes are concerned, uh, I'm not sure that I could tell any anecdotal stories oh. that would be valuable on your oh. podcast. <laughs> uh, I will tell you that there was one moment that was kind of wonderful. Yeah. That is, we were in Italy, locationing in Italy, where we shot uh, the fire mayor sequence, yeah. and uh, we had all of these Clydesdale horses that were being rounded up in this kind of small area that uh, came off of a mountain area. And I was sitting up on one of the mountains, literally looking down at what was being shot, and I had a uh, tape recorder with me uh, to listen to a tape that the studio music department had sent to me of the score of a movie, uh, which was, I think, uh, The Wrath of Khan, one of the Star Trek movies. Yeah. And it was a musical score written by a very young composer by the name of James Horner. Yeah. And I listened to this uh, in the in on this mountain in in Italy, <laughs> not knowing that I was going to say yes because it was quite a wonderful score I was listening to, yeah. and having no idea that we would hire James Horner, that James Horner would come in to he would write the music and come into London to conduct the London Symphony Orchestra and a number of choruses beside that, uh, and that James Horner would end up. Uh, one of the major film composers of all time. Wow, there you go. But no, it was um, beautiful locations there, uh, and as well as, I mean, the sets, I mean, when I first saw it, of course, being very young at the time and not knowing too much about how movies were made, I, of course, assumed that, that all of it was done outside, you know, it didn't, it didn't completely, wasn't completely aware of... Uh, well, for example, I mean, as you know, there's a major sequence of the movie is in a great big swamp. Yeah. And uh, it's where the, the villain's henchmen, the, the slayers, kind of come out of the water, and there's various fighting going on. And they're, they're looking for the fortress, which is why they're going through the swamp. Well, that swamp, it was a set. Yeah. And the set was built on what then was, I presume still is, but I don't know, the biggest stage, film stage, uh, in the in the world. Yeah. It was the James Bond stage. It's where all of the major special effects were done uh, for the James Bond movies. Yeah. So, uh, no, except for the fire mayor sequence and the exterior of the castle uh, and the mountain climbing sequence. Yeah. Uh, and then there was, I think, one short location we had in England. Everything else was shot yeah. uh, at Pinewood at the studio. Yeah, I mean that that just I mean that just adds to how impressive the the sets were. That uh, you know, <laughs> for for this little boy at the time, I was uh, I was genuinely fooled. But I mean that's that's good. Oh, it's amazing what you can do with styrofoam. That's right. <laughs> it's it just adds to the uh, the whole thing, the magic of the movies. You know, making us uh, believe we're uh, we're somewhere else when really we're just in a inside a big shed. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's tremendous. Anyway, into um, prose production, we talked about James Horner and, and the amazing, utterly amazing score. I still think. It's well, let me just 
say one more thing about James Horner. As I said, he was very young at the time, and he looked even younger than he was. He probably looked 20 years old. And he came in to conduct the score. We were scoring the movie. And again, it was the London Symphony Orchestra. It was two major choruses. And when he came in, I don't, I may be making this up from the time, but I felt it and others did as well, is that the members of the London Symphony Orchestra who had been through this on other movies, and uh, they were kind of skeptical of the fact that this young kid was coming in to conduct his own, his score that he had composed. Well, by the time he finished the first cue, they were wrapping the music stands, the, the violinists were, with their bows. Yeah. I mean, they were so impressed with the work that James Horner did for this movie. And I would say this, that uh, I know that uh, you you think, and I think many others think, it's kind of presumptuous for me to think it, but yeah. I know it has become something of a cult movie. Yeah. But even before it became a cult movie, I think that, I think the thing that was most respected was James Horner's score. I mean, he went on to do Titanic, you know, and to win an Academy Award and whatever. But there are an awful lot of people online when you go through and and you you find places that uh, people are talking about James Horner that think that his score for Crawl is the best one that he ever did. Oh, sure. And I'm I'm right up, I'm leading the charge on that... uh... You know, I listen to it in the car. I listen to it while I'm riding. I listen to it. It's just, uh, it's <laughs> oh, it, it's cool. magical. It really is, and it it just it was so perfect. I mean, if you know, I mean, if they they talk about film music that after a while you can't disassociate the the images from the music, and when you just listen to the music, you can't help but think of the images, and I think that's the mark of a a, a tremendous score and. Uh, he certainly achieved that. Um, yeah. Certainly. Uh, so moving into what, what do you re- uh, Ray Lovejoy would go on to work with James Cameron on Aliens. Um, and uh, so what? What of your? What are your recollections of of post production? What What is the your your sort of position in post production? Uh, well, I, I didn't have much to do with Ray Lovejoy. I mean, no. the director really is in charge of working with the editor to get the cut. Yeah. But I did spend time with Derek Mettings to, yeah. uh, to be kind of, uh, I, I won't say in any way supervising, but at least commenting on the work that he was doing optically. Right. Uh, Derek Mettings uh, is, was a genius when it came to miniatures and models and whatever. And there was a lot to be done in, in post-production with regard to the work that Derek Meddings did. So I was very much involved with that. And then also involved with uh, people who were going to sell the movie, publicity, advertising, and whatever. Mm. But I didn't uh, I didn't spend a lot of time with Ray Lovejoy. No, no. But uh, so was uh, was the testing process alive and well? Was, was Kroll uh, given some test screenings before its theatrical release? Well, that's- that's an interesting story, Kent, because I, I, I will uh, try to be as uh, honest as I can about it. When, uh, when we were shooting this movie, irrespective of the fact that we were doing it on the basis of a whole new draft that came from Stan Sherman, uh, I think probably, again in retrospect, that his original two drafts were really, or draft really, 
we felt, I mean, we were into this movie to such a degree and working so hard that uh, we, we felt we had a great movie here and that uh, it was going to go out and be a blockbuster. We had uh, two test screenings at Burbank Studios, where Columbia was headquartered at the time. Uh, they were two screenings, one after the other, and it was the kind of screenings where the audience fills out cards. Yes. So after the first screening, uh, we were in the uh, projection booth and going over the cards together, and they were not terrible by any means, but they weren't what we had hoped for. And I think that was the moment at which the studio, and if they felt it, I felt it, uh, at which we felt that we didn't necessarily have a blockbuster here. So when the film went out, uh, it did do major business in some places, but not a lot of places. Right. So the film was not one that you would say in its initial release was successful. Right. And I think probably that the fact that that was the case makes it even more fulfilling for me personally to see that here we are 30 some odd years later, yeah. 37 years later, or no, 35 years later, yeah. that uh, the picture is still being talked about, uh, being talked about as a cult classic uh, that the James Horner score is still talked about, that uh, many of the stars that were in the film uh, still talk about it and still listed on their, their list of credits, and that the film has kind of gotten a life of its own beyond what it was in its initial release, yeah. which obviously then was quite disappointing. Yeah. Well, they say, you know, time is, is the greatest uh, critic, and, and time certainly prepares us to uh, greater appreciate certain experiences and yes I mean it has it has survived um, and and I'm you know I'm, I, one of my questions was of course you know I, I, are you aware you obviously are that it has it did uh, certainly develop a second life on on VHS and uh, and of course uh, now DVD and Blu-ray. Right. Um, it was the first. Ironically, it was the first DVD I actually ever bought, and I mean, I was very surprised. Really? Um, I remember going in, and, and DVDs were just coming in. There was still quite a lot of videotapes still, and I remember seeing these uh, DVDs, and and right. I was so shocked that Kroll was on DVD because I thought, you know, it wasn't like you said, it wasn't a popular release. It was, you know, more of a cult film, and I thought it looked like only you know, big, uh, big and successful films were getting put on DVD, and so I was very surprised and uh, overjoyed, really. And of course, there's a wonderful little behind-the-scenes feature which you feature in, which is uh, the journey to Kroll, which gives uh, viewers a little bit of a behind-the-scenes uh, look at you know, filming and all that sort of thing. So I, I'm just, uh, I, I'm, I'm through it. Like I've said at the top of the. Top of the show. It's it's my favorite film. Uh, well, I'm very pleased to talk to somebody who feels that way. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 a it's a constant joy. I often refer to it as my default film when I can't think of anything else to watch. You crawl's usually the movie that goes in. Um, <laughs> uh, I've not I've not seen it. Um, I, I would absolutely love to 
uh, see it. I have not seen it on the big screen. That's my one regret, I think. Um, because I, I, you know, I was. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I think it only came out in Australia on VHS. I don't think it had a theatrical release here. Um, well, it, ha- it has shown at various places in the United States on the big screen. Yeah. As a matter of fact, about four or five months ago, there was a theater in Los Angeles that ran the film and then brought uh, Ken Marshall in to talk to the audience. Oh, wonderful. So they also, I wasn't available by any means, but they, they did call my son. Yeah. Uh, who's a voiceover actor in Los Angeles, and he came in to uh, talk about Krull. He's an expert on Krull. I mean, he's probably memorized the film. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that he that he has in his possession is uh, one of the original glaives. Oh, wonderful! And, and what he did was he currently he got on stage with Ken Marshall and brought the glaive to hand a. Ken Marshall, so that Ken Marshall could kind of emulate the main piece of art in the advertising where he's holding the glaive. Oh, and apparently, from my son said, the audience went wild. Yeah. So it has shown in the, on the big screen occasionally. Mm-hmm. I haven't been any place. I live in Oregon, right. not in Los Angeles, so I haven't been any place where it's played. But I too would like to see it on a big screen. Yeah, no, it's um, it was it was unfortunate, but like I said, I. I don't believe it had a theatrical release here. It came out uh, straight to video and uh, and subsequently DVD and and Blu-ray, which is um, still, I mean, the transfer is wonderful. It's a beautiful transfer of the film. Um, And I I know it probably didn't receive, uh, you know, a a full restoration, but certainly the the version that has been released is a, a beautiful transfer and uh, the, the sound and the score and the effects are all uh, top-notch and for my money stand up um, to, to just as good as, as modern adventure films. Yeah, well I have read some uh, reviews in DVD magazines about the transfer and I think that uh, each review that I have read seems to say that it was, the transfer was excellent. Yes, no, it's absolutely incredible. But anyway, I've taken up too much of your time, Ron. I, uh, sorry for going a little bit over, but uh, I'm, I'm I'm happy to talk about it, Ken. Yeah, I'm very very thrilled. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to the producer, um, uh, the driving force behind my favourite film of all time. My guest has been Ron Silverman, the producer of Crawl. Ron, thank you very much, wholeheartedly, for your time this afternoon where you are this morning here. Yeah, well, you're certainly welcome. I was happy to do it. That was wonderful.